Hello, TTB community. I am Bob Demena, and here with me, as always, is the very cerebral Elliot, <laughs> Elliot Shibley. Sorry, I stuttered on your name a little bit there. It's all good. It's all good. I was stuttering, stuttering on the last episode. Yeah, it happens. You can. I, I stuttered when I said stuttered. You, you did. You know, the thing is, we talk so much, and there's so much of us out there that you're gonna, you're bound to mess up. Yeah, can't edit okay. everything out. We're not perfect. No. Far from it. And we don't really strive to be. No. So. We don't. Um, you know, no, <laughs> no, right. I don't. Well, I, I appreciate the compliment. You're welcome. I guess we can get into the, it's your the other stuff. <laughs> it is my turn. All right. So typical, we have an updated website. It's got some travel gear that is handpicked by Bob and myself that we have used that other people have used and that we highly recommend that we think would be beneficial to your next or current trip. We also have a book a trip page and it has all of our past guests, tour operators, or the owners of those companies talking about their tours, all of their trips. And especially with GJ Travel, uh, if you book with them through our website, you get a 5% discount on your next trip. And we will continually update this as we have guests on the show and all of the people that are on our website have been interviewed by us and you can listen to those episodes on any podcasting platform. So I'm going to give last week's trivia question. Okay. So last week we interviewed Simon who ran the tours in London. The question was what park did Simon recommend in the financial district? If you answered Postman's Park and emailed it to us at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com, we will be reaching out to you for your address and we're going to send to you a Traveler's Blueprint sticker. <laughs> sticker. It's so hard today. <laughs> Dude, I don't know what it is. To, to slap on your travel bag, laptop, whatever it is. So, all right. Today's episode was an incredible one. And I do mean that fully. We probably yeah. talked to one of the most adventurous people in modern times. I mean, I can't imagine people have taken it further. That many people have taken it further than him in the way he does it. He, he has walked the length of Mongolia. He has walked the length of Madagascar with a chicken in his backpack, I might add, <laughs> who formed a very strong bond with him. And then walked the length of the Yangtze River in China. So our conversation was so captivating that it went almost two hours. And we didn't even realize it. So, so we broke it down into two episodes just to make uh, the, the listening a little bit easier. This conversation focused on his experiences in Mongolia and Madagascar, but I would highly recommend tuning into the podcast next week where it's essentially the same conversation, but it picks up uh, in, in, with his travels into China and then more of the conservation efforts that he's sort of building upon with the newfound information he has on his travels. So all that being said, uh, without further introduction, please give it up for our next guest, Ash Dykes. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Ash, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Appreciate that. Good to be here. Thanks so for calling in. Yeah, thank you for joining us. So to sum up in a few words, uh, you are a Welsh adventurer who has hiked over 10,000 miles of some of the toughest terrain in the world. And you'll be turning 30 later this year, right? I will be, yeah, I will be 30. 
towards the end of this year. Yeah. Yeah. And to be turning 30, be 29 right now. So you're the same age as me and you have accomplished some of the most incredible feats out of anyone in this world. And that some people (laughs) hope to do even one of your achievements. Some people hope to do in just a lifetime. And some of those challenges nearly killed you. But before we get into all those details, because it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. And my first question is, what was your motivation to start your first trek? Yeah, it's a good question. You know what? Um, It all of this happened just so organically. You know, I never when I was younger, when I was in school or college, it was I, I didn't think an adventurer was was a thing. You know, an extreme athlete, explorer, whatever you want to categorize it as. I didn't know that you could really earn money, let alone myself do it this way. Um, it was all very organic. So I was just working like in a fish and chip shop as a waiter, as a lifeguard. I saved up the pennies, knew I was more of a kinesthetic learner. So I learned far more through hands-on practical experience. And I had this idea that rather, because I believe we all, all learn in completely different ways. And for myself, rather than learning via university, um, I, as you can imagine, I'm pretty bad at sitting in a classroom and staying still. Um, I wanted to, you know, take this finance that I, I worked hard to achieve and, and travel just to explore different cultures, different people, different traditions. And I did. I left with my, uh, my friend, Matt Norman. And whilst we were traveling, we were on a, a crazy shoestring budget. Uh, and a lot of what we were doing was mainly like small hikes at that time, you know, trekking the Himalayas or trekking a part of the Great Wall of China. Um, yeah, a lot hikes. of cycles as well. <laughs> What's that? Small hikes. <laughs> yeah, well, that Great Wall of China one, that was only a day hike, really, or a two-day hike. Um, but we were very much on the tourist route. And so I would say, what well, you know, I transitioned into hiking probably because of my previous cycles. I knew that if I'm on a bike, I'm on a road. If there's a road, there's people. If there's people, there's food, there's water, there's safety. Whereas the idea of going on a hike, I knew that I could go places where no no bicycles can go, no cars can go, no tourist transport will take you. And that sort of excited me. I thought, okay, it is going to be more dangerous because I'll have to be a lot more self-reliant. But that sort of survival excited me probably more than the walking itself. The walking, it's funny. I say that the walking I find um, boring, depending on where you are, but it's the magic that happens. And I think there's probably a lot of listeners who will be able to relate. It's the magic that happens on the, on the hike, whether it's just time to think, whether it's people that you meet, um, whether it is, you know, more extreme and there's survival or challenges and obstacles to be overcome. Uh, that's sort of what is what excites me. Uh, and so that's why I decided pretty much to take the transition from stop cycling countries and, and actually go walk across some of the world's most dangerous terrain. <laughs> so, so it's the mental challenge for you more than anything else? Uh, I, would say, I would say it's a mix. Yeah, I love the physical challenges. Um, probably not when I'm undertaking them but once i <laughs> once, once i'm on the, the the other end of it i'm like wow that was a cool challenge you know that's a story i tested myself i saw what i was made of um sometimes i fail sometimes i achieve it ups and downs but i would say it's the people you know I, i'm just cute there's no dark story with me i know that a lot of people that that do what i do normally they'll do it start like towards the early to mid 30s and they'll come out of a military career and then they'll go and, you know, climb the mountains or hack through the jungles and whatnot. Uh, or it's someone who's got like a dark story, something bad happened to them and they're sort of changing their way. But with myself, just a normal guy from a pretty bog standard background, 
on the coast of Wales and the UK, um, <laughs> just with this curiosity and, and love for the world and thinking, you know, it's a, it's a big place. There's still lots to, there's lots to see, lots to do, lots to explore. Why not, why not grasp it with both hands and, and sort of go for it? And so I come from more of a positive spin. That's that's sort of what's amazing about your story is that you are just a normal guy, right? Like you're a yeah, normal guy yeah. that a lot of us can relate to with the background and the upbringing. Yeah. And then also that that knack and that craving for adventure. I think a lot of people have that. I, I have it myself. But yeah, you, you 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 went with it in a direction that is so impressive and, and kind of mind boggling, you know, to, to sum up your trips. It seems like you have three major ones so far and it's your walk through the Yancey River or along the Yancey River. Yeah, it's your most yeah. recent trip. You you walked the length of Madagascar. And that's the short length, the long one. Right, it's from over south mountains. to north, right? You went yeah. from south to north. And then and then you walk the country of Mongolia, which yeah. to pick Mongolia was just, just, is just crazy to me yeah. um, in, in itself. So yeah. I think I think what people can, listening can take from you is that, you know, you like you mentioned, you don't need a dark story. You don't need to have military experience or have some sort of uh, background in, in adventure travel. You can go, just kind of pick it up on your own. If you have the willpower, you have the the knack for it and and yeah um it, it's doable essentially is what that's i guess it. i'm trying to that's say it. it is doable for for yeah most people. anyone right exactly right. yeah i think you and you know and you were mentioning on this on this um before the show how you know you interviewed a, a guy who was blind and he managed to summit uh some of the world's highest peaks and i think that is that is bang on that's inspirational so that is like taking what i do but to the extreme in terms of you know, there's there's never really any excuse. It's all out there for everyone. It doesn't matter your background. And I guess I, I can talk when it when I say it doesn't matter about your finance either, because uh, that's the second thing that people assume. Like, oh, have you got rich parents or do you come from a wealthy background? Yeah. Not at all. You know, I had to, my, you know, my parents have been supportive in ways that they've always said, if you want something, you know, you've got to work hard yourself. No one's going to work hard for you to achieve it. You know, you've got to put the time in, put the grind in. Um, the the blood, sweat, and tears, and whatnot, and and work hard yourself to make it happen. And so I did. You know that was instilled in me. I was working from the age of I don't know fourteen, fifteen in a fish and chip shop. I think on three or four dollars an hour, three dollars an hour. I think it was. Um, went on to become a waiter, and then I went on to become a lifeguard. I was working two hundred and forty hours a month, every month, just on my bicycle. You know, I'd cycle to work, uh, to work, do do my twelve hour days or whatever, then cycle back. Um, just to make it happen. So, you know, it's possible even if you don't come from a financial background, just put in the time, put in the work and earn the money yourself and then get out there and, uh, and do it. And all of my early travels were just really low budget, you know, cycling Vietnam and Cambodia. That was my first sort of adventure, which was the catalyst. I'd, I'd spent, what, $10 on a bike? It had a little pink bell, a little basket on the front. Wait, wait, wait. You bought a bike and it wasn't even like a real road bike. It was like yeah, a child's it bike. Ridiculous. It was sort of an old granny's transportation bicycle to get it from her house to. Did her it have tassels? <laughs> yeah, and you know we found string on the side of the road because at first we were looking to carry the rucksacks on on our back whilst we pedaled, uh, but we found string. We we like hammered in a, a rack on the back of the bike, and it had no gears, no suspension. Man, we didn't even take no pump. No pump, no puncture repair kit for any punctures that we got. We were about to cycle over 1,100 miles. You know? oh we were relying on the locals. We've got a puncture. There's locals everywhere in Vietnam. You know, we just walked them into, into some locals hoping that they would help, which they were always super friendly, really hospitable. 
and super handy as well. You know, they can do anything. So they'd fix us up, fix the bikes, and off we went. I think the bikes broke 17 times in total, but the locals always found a way to, to fix those bikes. That is, that is great. incredible. That they said, yeah, you we were spent able to rely on us. $2 a day, maximum. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, your biggest trip cost was probably getting there. Yeah. Yeah, it was. You know, we, that was when we were on the travel route. So when I first set off at age 19, you know, just a teenager. I was in China. I was doing the Great Wall of China, as I told you. Um, it was it was cool. I loved that, and I loved being out there. A whole different vibe. But I found that I was, you know, very much on the on the beaten track. You know, I wanted to create my own sort of unique experiences, and I found that if I'm following the guides of the Lonely Planet book, or or you know, staying on the route that just sort of bypasses these amazing local communities, and you don't even get to hop off the bus and see these locals, then I'm not really going to experience that country that I'm in. Um, hence the decision of getting a bicycle. So after China, we went to Thailand, we went over to Cambodia ne uh, next, and that's when the decision came to mind. We were like, let's stop spending money on trains and buses because we're on a shoestring budget here. We worked hard to save that money. We don't want to go in after like only one month. Um, but we had that sense of adventure, lack of money. So that's what we did. We bought a bicycle. Uh, and off we went, really, to create our own <laughs> stories and to see how the locals are living, you know. And we'd rock up communities. They'd seen Westerners plenty of times. Obviously, we're in Vietnam. But um, actually taking time out to eat with them and sit down and try to converse with them for a couple of hours was amazing. You know, they were pulling on our leg hairs because they got to get really close. And, you know, it was just fascinating. Was Wait, like did you say they were pulling on your leg hairs? Like, not? Yeah. that's not a metaphor. No, so the, so the Vietnamese guys, they don't grow leg hairs. So they found it really weird that um, as Westerners have hairs on our legs. So they're like, what the hell? And so they're curious. <laughs> they're like, bloody hell, we don't have no hairs on our legs. What is this? And they're pulling. And it's pretty painful. They're pulling our legs. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and we were like super hungry, super dehydrated. So we are just wolfing down these noodles and eggs. And we got the locals like feeling, you know, just the color of our hair as well and so they obviously knew all of this beforehand but to get up close and personal and we were so laid back around them that they just didn't care they braved it and were just like i'm gonna pull his leg hair and feel it <laughs> all right <laughs> that's that's fascinating i mean to, Crazy, to imagine yeah. what what that experience is like though from their perspective where their people are living in these remote villages with no internet connection they really don't understand yeah. or, or have any idea of what's going on in in these western countries and then all of a sudden you have these these uh, Westerners come along on a pink bike with hairy <laughs> legs, ready, looking for water. And yeah, food. man, it, it yeah. had to have been a pretty remarkable experience for them too. It was great. You yeah. know, we got so roughed up along that journey because we didn't even have any glasses, no shades. It was reckless. You know, we were dodged by uh, lorries. You know, big trucks. We were slammed by mopeds, chased by dogs. We hardly washed either, so it was sort of like the mosquito spray of the night would mix with the sunscreen of the day and turn our skin blue. We weren't getting much sleep. The last day we cycled 39 hours solid, you know, all the way through the day, all the way through the night, all the way through the following day. And once we had arrived and completed that journey, uh, after that 39 hour stint, we were turned down by seven different hostels and guest houses because they were like, you look a mess. Um, they thought that we might have been on drugs. We had like these black bags under our eyes. We had blue skin from the mozzie spray and the sunscreen. We had our hair sticking up with flies still trapped, trying to escape our hair. <laughs> um, we were just a mess, you know? We've got these these hideous looking bicycles. At this point, we had sprayed the multi-colors to make, make them look even more ridiculous. 
Uh, and yeah, we went up. We were up for over 45 hours before some lady took pity on us and allowed us to stay at her uh, guest house. Wow. Crazy. Wow. So it was and, mad. And, but, and, so, and this was just the starting point. This isn't even the craziest thing you've done. No, that was, that was my <laughs> first away from home adventure. So that one, I say, is the catalyst. You know, I had found my niche. I found my passion. I was like, man, I love this. I love how little money we spent. Um, and I love the adventure and the close encounters we got and of like really experiencing Vietnam and Cambodia. And I was just like to my friend, you know, should we, what else should we do? That's when we then went to Thailand. We, and we, there was this guy on the outskirts of Pai, which is sort of Northwest of Thailand, um, like close to, close to the jungle. And he said like, there's this Burmese hill tribe that's living, um, close to the border on the other side in Myanmar, you know, and do you want me to take you there? And like, we can stay there a couple of nights. And that screams sort of danger. Do not go into the jungle with a, with a wild Thai guy. You know, you hear movies like that, don't you? But at that time, we were sort of like, risk nothing, gain nothing, you know? <laughs> let's let's <laughs> yeah. do it. We were, young, we were young and reckless. And we did. And this guy was, he was awesome. We crossed into the jungle. We eventually reached this, this Burmese hill tribe. They took us in. They welcomed us in. They were teaching us how to hunt, how to gather um, how to build shelter and rafts using natural resources. It was just a mind-blowing experience and a humbling experience as well, only to learn just a small fraction of how knowledgeable these guys are, you know? So again, we came out of the jungle, craving adventure even more. We were like, whoa, what the hell just happened? That was a crazy cool experience. And um, they taught us jungle survival. We just cracked on. Say again. How old were you at that point? I was 19. So that Jeez, was only a couple man. of weeks after the Vietnam cycle. Oh, I, you were doing this at 19. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very yeah lines, so I, I planned it when I was very. about 16, 17, wow. just here in, in North Wales. I had this idea, you know, go traveling. But I had this idea that, it would, you know, I need, needed to invest in myself as well because um, I knew that if I went off traveling, the money would run out and I'd be forced to come back to the UK whilst everyone would have moved on with their lives, with their careers. We're now earning good money. Uh, and I would be there, not even with a university degree, having failed, not, not failed the traveling, but um, having come back short because I spent the money. So I thought if we can get our scuba diving qualifications, maybe eventually after doing these crazy adventures around Southeast Asia, maybe we can then find work and top up our funds without coming back to the UK. Uh, and we did that. We pretty much did that. Um, so yeah, it was all these crazy adventures first with the idea that Eventually, we want to try to knuckle down with the work abroad. And we did. Yeah, I went to Australia before I knuckled down with the work. Though in Australia, it was just way too expensive. Have you been to Australia? No. No, but we live in a very expensive place. In the yeah, world. <laughs> yes, I, we do. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's probably similar to London prices as well. But because yeah. I was in Southeast Asia for a couple of months, you should always do it the other way. You know, go to the expensive country first and then enjoy the cheapness of Southeast Asia. But I didn't do it that way. Uh, I got used to the cheapness of Southeast Asia, went to Australia and I was like, whoa, this is expensive. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was, I was still nine, uh, no, I was 20 then at that time. Um, but yeah, that's when I, I was only there for three months in Australia, sort of uh, hitchhiking up north. I just got a car, but we broke down in the wild um, in a dangerous part as well. But we had to wait for 13 hours it took before we saw our, our first car got ourselves out the bush and then we did a cycle down south australia and then for the next two years i was living and working in thailand as a as a master scuba diving instructor um and muay thai fighter and that's what? sort of all of it before the mongolia journey before Madagascar, before 
so Mongolia was next. The the next yeah. major major trip. And and what what made you pick Mongolia? So it was probably because I was in Thailand for two years. I was on that sort of tourist route, teaching tourists who want to tick uh, scuba diving off their bucket list. Um, and they were all on the truck or all on that sort of travel route. And no one that I had taught or come across had ever been to Mongolia or had Mongolia down as their travel itinerary. So I was just curious, you know, I was like, why is no one talking about like Mongolia is this massive, it's the second largest landlocked country in the world. I think it's one of the most, maybe second or third most sparsely populated country in the world. It's got the Altai Mountains, the Gobi Desert, you've got the Eagle Hunters in the West, the reindeer herdsmen up north. Um, I was just fascinated. I knew it was a harsh place, but that was what attracted me most. You know, I was like, man, imagine if I was to do some sort of adventure there. Um, and then I knew that I didn't want to do a cycle because I'd done plenty of cycles before. I'd cycled Thailand, cycled Australia, cycled the UK, um, Cambodia and Vietnam, as I mentioned. So I liked the idea of really this survival angle. Um, and when I started to plan that, it was a case of, you know, when you plan an, an adventure for myself, how I did it at that time, it was always look for those people who have done it before. Because obviously you can ask them for tips, you can ask them for advice. And so I brought various teams on board from America, from the UK, uh, but specifically from Mongolia, because if anyone would have done this, it would have been a Mongolian. And we couldn't find any evidence to suggest that anyone had completed a solo and unsupported walk across Mongolia, which was the journey that I was looking to undertake, uh, which would be around 1,500 miles, anticipated to take about 100 days. But we did find someone who had spent a long time planning to walk across it um, and then attempted three times, but unfortunately was evacuated. I think it was just before the halfway point. Um, so I reached out to him anyway, you know, asking for tips and advice on if he thinks it's possible. He didn't think it was possible, uh, but he did help with the tips, with the advice. And he just had this big list, you know, watch out for the snow um, blizzards, the wells, the dry water. Um, uh, the dry wells, sorry, the stagnant water, the wolves, the sandstorms, and the list just went on and on. And then I realized that he was a Navy soldier, a desert explorer, and sort of looked at myself and thought, what hope do you have being a 21-year-old <laughs> scuba diver living on a beach? <laughs> mm. um, and I did, I did put that to the side. I looked at maybe a safer country to walk across. But then it was at that point I realized, you know, just because no one's found a way to to do something, you know, doesn't mean it can't be done. Uh, and I believe that in any career, in any industry. And I thought if I can apply focus, proper preparation this time, and like the Vietnam cycle, um, then maybe, maybe I can do it. And so I went for it, but I came back to the UK to train properly this time. So you, you <laughs> yeah. do, you put a lot of, it seems like you put a lot of effort into planning, making sure that you, you understand the country and the route and the dangers that are involved. And then you That's train it. physically as well. Yeah, so I was learning the respect. I never got to take a trip out there just because of the budget. So I never got to, to do a recce, if you like. Um, so what I is a recce? A recce sort of like going out there and scouting. Uh, the oh, land. like reconnaissance. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, I never really got that. I did with Madagascar, but not with the Mongolia journey. Okay. Um, so I had to sort of visualize everything that could go wrong. I sort of had to meet up with people who had been there. And I had a great logistics manager on board called Rob Mills, who um, has experience of living out there for five years. And he does all expedition planning out there. He was like manager of the Mongol rally. Um, he's done all sorts. Uh, and yeah, it was pretty much, there was a lot of naysayers with that journey. 
hence the book name being called Mission Possible. There's a lot of people saying it can't be done, it's impossible. And, you know, people who had experienced Mongolia and had a much greater experience than I had, I'd never been there. Uh, and so that started to get to me. You know, I did start to worry. I, I did have a lot of fear. Um, and it's at that point that I was with Rob at the Royal Geographic Society with the great maps. And I told him that, you know, this is all starting to get to me. These people saying it can't be done. And this is how you're going to die. Or this is how you're going to fail. And most man hauling journeys fail. It was a lot to, to take in. But what I did is I had the proper maps and I broke, I broke the whole journey down into days. So I said, people are saying it's impossible looking at the map and looking at the exact route that we've drilled out, which one of these days is the impossible day. And when we broke it down like that, which again, I think can be done in everything we do in life. Once we broke it down and looked at every single day, we realized that every day was possible. As long as I made the water sources, as long as I had enough food in the trailer that I'd have to pull behind me, then there's not an impossible day. You know, I, I, it, we can do this. Um, much bigger things obviously have been achieved before. Why can't this one be achieved? And so what, that really helped me breaking the goals down. I do that with absolutely everything. Um, and that's when we realized it can be done. Let's train, let's prepare. I was training physically. I didn't have no um, money for a gym membership. So I was just training in my, in my back garden. Um, well, you know, if I just show you now, I don't know how clearly <laughs> you can see. But you, can you see those sort of oh, yeah. Um, yeah. bars there? So it was there that I would flip the tractor tire, I would beat it with a sledgehammer and I would, I'd be training in snow, in rain, in mud, it didn't matter. Um, but not just to build me up physically, you know, I needed to build up my inner core strength, my durability to the demands of pulling such a heavy trailer behind me, which weighed 18 stone or 120 kilograms. Um, but also mentally, by preparing myself physically, I was training myself mentally, trying to make myself as uncomfortable as I possibly could in the hope that I'd become more comfortable with um, being out in the elements, out in the extremes, putting myself in unpleasant scenarios and telling myself if there's going to be wolves, expect to be attacked. If there's going to be blizzards, expect them to be the biggest and the baddest. Not because I want to face the biggest because I didn't, of course, but I thought if I'm thinking of worst case scenario, my worst case was to happen, at least somewhat. I'd hopefully be mentally prepared enough to tackle it because it's something I expected, I visualized, so nothing you can do except for crack on. Can you talk a little bit about the food preparation like how did you get food how much did you carry on your trailer so you were dragging this trailer 250 pounds of it behind you every single day i assume <laughs> that included food and water and tools to fend off wolves and have your tent everything yeah, yeah. everything so again and because of the low budget i couldn't afford no carbon fiber <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> it was a mild steel trailer built in my family friend's back garden. Um, and so on an empty load, it weighed 40 kilograms. I don't know what that is in. That's about 85 pounds. pounds. What is it? 85. So 85 pounds on an empty load because we had to carry the, um, the tires needed to be puncture proof. So they were solid rubber, no air. Um, and it was, it was a hefty, hefty book. We knew by being mild steel, it's going to be robust. And most man hauling journeys do fail because the trailer breaks, you know, or the sleigh behind them, it's unable to cope with the demands. So at least it, it was heavy, but at least it was robust. Uh, and we carried, yeah, I carried food. I think it was about five weeks worth of ration packs uh, that I took. I had a stove. I had a 20 liter container for the water, which that alone is 20 kilograms of water. 
Uh, I had uh, sleeping equipment. I had cloven equipment to last the cold temperatures of the Altai Mountains, but also hot weather equipment to last the Gobi Desert. So it was almost like multiple expeditions in one. I wasn't just preparing for one climate. I was preparing for three different climates, really, in the Mongolian steppe, the Gobi Desert, and then higher altitude in the uh, Altai Mountains. So I had a lot of, a lot of kit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you mentioned wolves. Did you encounter yes. any wolves in this experience? With this experience, uh, I only came across footprints. Luckily, at nighttime, it was so windy that I couldn't hear any of the howling, which would have spooked me a bit, I think. Um, but I was told by the locals that there were wolves hunting up ahead and that I would be eaten alive. That was pretty scary. Um, That's reassuring. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was one of those, right, okay, maybe take your headphones out. <laughs> and I cracked on. The locals then learned about my journey. It became quite popular in, uh, in Mongolia and they started to call me the Lonely Snow Leopard. Um, and I thought, you know, wow, what a, what a, what a cool nickname. Yeah. Uh, but then when I spoke to my logistics manager, who was based in the capital city, he said, yeah, they're calling you the Lonely Snow Leopard because you've not yet been eaten by the wolves. I was like, right, okay. I like the way you said yet. Um, I couldn't wait to get out of the outside mountains because of it. You know, I was like, bloody hell, I thought it was a cool name now. I'd prefer not to have it. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this trip is blowing my mind because not only is the length of it, in, its, in and of itself, an incredible feat, but you're going through different environments. So it seems like yeah. it, now, as soon as you, you get used to one environment and you're in the mountains, you then transition to the Gobi Desert and, you, yeah. and you're continuing on this journey. You're pulling a 250 pound sled and now you need to re-acclimate, re, um, right? To, to this yeah. new, these new conditions. That's it. That's it. It was, it was, oh man, it was, I, like looking back now, I'm thinking that is insane. Um, <laughs> yeah, man. Because I probably, <laughs> you know, uh, I probably, I lost quite a bit of weight as well because the Altai Mountains, my trailer doesn't have any, any brakes. You know, we had nothing like that. So when you were lugging up a mountain um, and then you start to struggle, your feet start sliding back, you've got to put all of your effort in. Because if you, if you let go, that trailer will drag you back down that mountain, whether you like it or not, with the weight of it. It's the, it's the same weight as a, a heavyweight boxer, you know? Like, yeah. like Anthony Joshua, for example, it's his weight, 18 stone. Um, and so that was, the, that was terrifying. That was scary. But I lost a lot of weight because of it, because I was pulling it up and down the mountains. So by the time I hit the Gobi Desert, at first I kind of thought, oh, nice. You know, I'll get a warmer climate. I'm sick of the cold. My lips were all blistered up and pussing. Um, because of the altitude and cold weather, you know, I drink from my ration pack. I'd have like porridge with berries and I would drink that. And as I slurped it back down, there'd be a flow of pus and blood into my ration pack. Um, oh. I just have, I'd have to ply my lips open in the morning cause they would scab over. It was horrible. So I was looking forward to getting off the altitude and getting into a warmer environment. But <laughs> sorry, that's so gross. Yeah. That's hideous, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but that I can't get that image out of my head. <laughs> Yeah, imagine that, just sort of plying your lips open and you, you bleed. And of oh, course that sounds like grim. a nightmare, like an it actual nightmare. nightmare that I've had, like where my lips, my mouth won't open. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I, you, I guess you forgot chapstick. Yeah, I, I don't did. know if yeah, that would right. yeah. help all that yeah. much. Dude, I, I, hear I, I had planned everything down to the wells across Mongolia and the water points, but yeah, forgot my lips or my chapstick. <laughs> I, I, I'll go out to dinner with my wife and if she forgets her chapstick, I hear about it over and over again. So. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I did, you know, in, in Madagascar, um, I, I ran out of chapstick there, but 
you've got plants, you've got like aloe vera plants out there, so it's right. fine. You can just apply one of them and apply them. But in the Gobi Desert, you're not finding anything out there, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, I was suffering pretty bad. Um, and little did I realize that the Gobi Desert would be the hardest, um, in, in fact, threatening not just to the expedition, but to, to my life. I did almost die in the Gobi Desert. From what? Which was which was terrifying uh, from dehydration, from heat stroke, effectively. So the water points that I had hit, one of the wells, were dry. There was no water there. And I was warned about that. That's why I, I would always try to supply myself with enough water. Uh, but easier said than done when you, you know, you're pulling 18 stone. You're now facing a mix of gravel and soft sand. So the, the wheels that I was telling you about are pretty thin wheels. So they're sinking in that soft sand, which makes the trailer feel like you're pulling now a concrete block through hell. It went 40 plus degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in, in Fahrenheit. 100 plus Fahrenheit, quite easy, I would have thought. Yeah, it's like 110. Yeah, I was, I was sort of uh, over the weeks because I was five weeks in the Gobi Desert. So I was slipping further and further into dehydration, heat exhaustion, and well on my way to heat stroke, which is usually fatal. Um, there was no breeze. There was no natural shelter. You know, there's no trees out there where you can hide from the sun. Um, the only sort of shelter that I could find was under my trailer. So sometimes on the gravel floor with sharp rocks sticking in my back, I was hallucinating. I was delirious and I could almost feel my organs drying up. It was that bad. I was sort of rationing my last remaining dribbles of water, um, hoping that there would be enough there so that I can reach the next water source. And at my worst point where I kept hiding under my trailer, I was hiding for about 45 minutes or one hour at a time. just too terrified to get back out from under the trailer at that point i knew that i had four days to walk until i reached guaranteed a water source there was a community there i knew there was water i had missed the point of pack uh, of pickup i didn't have no helicopter pickup like the previous guy i would be relying on my agent to get to me in which i needed to allow at least three to four days for him to get to me and then another day or two for him to get me to safety so you calculate about six days or four days if I walk so I pretty much um, passed the point of pickup my only option was to walk and that was a scary realization the fact that if I don't keep getting up from out of my trailer and pushing on I'm gonna die um, and what I did there is I was mentioning to you about breaking my goals down and this pretty much saved my life in the Gobi I couldn't visualize four days because I was in too much agony uh, as I mentioned but I could visualize 100 meters you know I could see 100 meters and so I, it was now time to focus not on what happens if I die, but focus on the goals and breaking my options down into lots of little sections. And so I allowed myself no more than five minutes. I would cap it at five minutes under my trailer and I would walk for what I thought was around 100 meters, 200 meters if I was lucky uh, before hiding under my trailer again. And for four days, I did this sort of rationing my my water, which was now hot water as well, by the way. So that was hideous, you know, but I was, I was sipping it, making sure I had enough to try to last me the course. And luckily by doing that, I did just about make it. Uh, I was off the radar, you know, I arrived at the community. The locals were amazing. They allowed me to stay there. It took me eight days to recover. Um, my, my urine was pretty much black, you know, it was awful. I was oh. having nightmares. I wasn't sleeping. I was sweating, but then I wasn't sweating. I was drinking lots and again, I was just, my body was ruined almost. Um, and I got scared to push on things. I knew how fast the sun could take me. But once I had made a full recovery, I had sort of built up that, that courage and thought, okay, maybe if I can push on another week, I'm out of the Gobi Desert and I enter into the steppe where it's slightly cooler and decided to, to push on. 
um, completing that journey, you know, just about very scary times. And that's what the previous guy was trying to tell me, um, that the Gobi Desert, it's just, you need, you need a community. So when the nomads found out what I was doing, they thought it was a little bit stupid, actually. You know, they, they said, you, you need to take camels with you or you need our yak uh, or goats. You need livestock and you travel as a community. You travel with your friends, with your family. Because nomads have covered the, um, the country. They travel all the time. They travel all across Mongolia. Um, but to do it solo and unsupported, you know, there was never any sort of mild steel trailers that we could pull that would be so reliable back in the day. And if they would travel, if they weren't traveling with someone, they would travel with something, being a camel or being a horse or being a yak. So I knew that that would be the biggest danger. Uh, but yeah, I, I completed that. Luckily, I came back. The previous guy, uh, really cool guy, he messaged me saying, you proved that, that it could be done. I was the angel sitting on your shoulder, he said. Um, and yeah, then it, that, that's history. I was 2014 or 2013. And, um, remarkable. Well, that was a crazy man. one. <laughs> so as you're as you're sitting in this in this village in or, or town in, in Mongolia, and you have these eight days to yeah. recover, I'm sure you're you're weighing your options and contemplating. You know, do, is this worth my life? Should I call it right? I mean, and what was the <clears throat> what was the ultimate um, game changer? Like, what decision? Or what was the what had the biggest impact on your decision to keep going? Yeah, got yeah. I feel that um, when it got to the point where I had no choice but to continue to that community, that was the scariest. Then once I once I'd made it to that community, I knew that I'm in safe hands as long as my body didn't fail me. Because you know, with heat stroke, it does usually kill you. It can normally just take you. Um, and my body was almost on the brink of failing me or not. And when I started to see it getting better it was then that I knew, right, I don't need to fly home. You know, I don't need to fly back to the UK to recover. I can recover and I am recovering in this community day by day. Um, and so as soon as I realized that, I thought to myself, and I remember Skyping into my agent who was in the capital because he was asking a lot, you know, lots of questions, of course. Um, and I said, even if I have to stay here for a whole month or two months, I will stay here until I'm fully recovered, until I'm feeling 100% enough to be able to push on so it was that mind frame that once I got my health back or when I was when I knew I was getting my health back should I say that mindset came back to me of I know why I'm out here I know why I'm doing it I know that now I can't die because if I was going to die I you know it's the worst part is now behind me and I've survived that and I knew that that would always be the most difficult part and that was where the previous guy was picked up three times was on that part that I was really struggling to push through so I knew that the worst was behind me, if you like. So as long as I could fully recover, there's no way I'm not completing it. You wow, know, man. and so I just decided push on, go easier. I said to myself, it's not a rush. I don't need to rush, you know, take more water. Even though, you know, sometimes taking more water, you're sort of weighing out the odds because water weighs a lot, man. It's one, one kilogram to every one liter. Um, so you're giving yourself a difficult time. But I decided to cut my mileage down, to cut it shorter. I had my tent. It was no man's land. I was in no rush to get to a community. As long as I had food and water, I could camp anywhere in the wilderness. There's no fences. It's amazing like that. I went over eight days without seeing a single person. And I thought to myself, just, just enjoy that because it's rare that you can travel such countries nowadays in the 21st century where you'll cover such distance and not see a single human. So after that stint in the Gobi Desert, yeah, I think I decided to try to enjoy it more, try to go easy. It's almost like I was in a race. When there was no, it was, it was a first, it wasn't a speed record, it was a, it was a world first. 
But I don't know, maybe I was just look, pushing myself too hard. And that's what I learned from the Gobies to actually, you know, enjoy the environment you're in, take your time and look after yourself even more. So, you know, I always say, I love that quote, um, what matters more than the mistakes you make is what you're able to learn from them. And I learned from that. And thankfully, I've never been um, dehydrated since. <laughs> that's good. That's Not good. to that extent anyway. Yeah. yeah. How long from the start to the uh, community that you recovered in, how long in mileage was that? From the very from the start until the community, yeah. Oh, that was probably eight hundred miles. Okay, so close to like the say. halfway point. Yeah, yeah, maybe just over the halfway point. Um, but yeah, I came across communities before that. There are always like different communities along the way, or nomads just living in their tent that I would come across. Yeah. Um, but that was the, like the the life saving community, literally, where I knew that if I get to there is definitely people there and there's definitely water. But to recover off the food was very difficult. They have no fruit, no vegetables. It was just meat. So when you're just craving your, your nutrients, your vitamins, it's, um, it was a difficult place to recover, but it could have been worse. I could not have made it at all. So I was happy yeah. to be there. <laughs> yeah, we're glad you're here talking to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, man. So, so before we move on to Madagascar, I, I did read uh, on your Mongolian trip that you made a friend, uh, Gertrude. Do you yes. mind explaining your, your friend that you met? Yeah, Gertrude, the bloody chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Madagascar was crazy. I think people probably see us Mongolia being the big deal of the two, but I have to, I don't know, man, it's difficult. Maybe it goes to Madagascar just because it was challenge after challenge, you know? Um, but in terms of the Gertrude story, so that was just over the halfway point. Uh, my mission was to walk from the most southern point of Madagascar to the most northern point of the island uh, via its interior because I didn't want to go via the beaches and the coastline. It's pretty safe there. And, you know, you don't really see a lot of Madagascar. You just see the beach resorts, um, whereas the interior, no one really understands what it's like on the, on the true interior. Um, and to make sure that I would stay in the interior, I, I made it my obligation to some of the eight highest mountains along the way. Don't know why I did that. Was hating that decision at the time. Just, but I did you know, it. make it harder. <laughs> What's that? Just to make it harder. Yeah, just to make it harder. Yeah. Um, and so, in order to summit the highest of those eight mountains, it's tradition that the locals say you must carry yourself a living white cockerel to the peak. Um, they say by doing this, it protects you from the witches and the bad spirits of the rainforest, something that they really believe in. They have witches in Madagascar, they tell me. Um, so I'm always, this is why I travel, I love it. So I am always about respecting the culture, no matter what it is, no matter where I go. And so I did, I, I found myself a white chicken. I called, I called him Gertrude, it was actually, it was a cockerel. And I do realize I gave him a girl's name. Uh, and off we went, you know, Gertrude was with me for over two and a half weeks. He summited three mountains in total because uh, we had two mountains to summit before we made the, the highest one and we wouldn't come across another community that could offer us a white chicken. Um, and yeah, two and a half weeks, we looked after him, we fed him, we gave him water. He became domesticated, almost like a dog. We wouldn't need to tie him up. We would put him in the rucksack if he got lazy, which a lot of the times he did, and he would stick by us. There was this one community that we came across, right? And I, I put uh, Gertrude in the chicken pen. I thought, you know, go make some friends. Um, <laughs> anyway, we were sleeping inside the hut. Me, Max, who was my guide, 
uh, Suzanne, who was my photographer, who joined me for a few weeks, and her porter called Leva. And so the four of us were sleeping in this um, mud hut, if you like. And by the morning, we saw that Gertrude uh, perched himself. He managed to escape his pen, his chicken pen, work his way across the courtyard to sleep with us. He missed us that much. He was so used to human activity after those couple of weeks that he wasn't leaving us. And he hated being with other chickens. He wanted to be with the humans. <laughs> I took a video of that. I couldn't believe it. I was filming saying, it's a bloody chicken. It's, it's managed to escape its chicken pen. It's found its way to our mud hut and it's now sleeping with us perched up on the windowsill. <laughs> I was just like, that's crazy. So, um, but yeah, and then we set him free on the peak of the mountain called Maramacocho. You know, I was hoping he would make it back down. I'm, I can't take him. I can't voluntarily take him because um, the locals say that we'd be bringing those bad witches and spirits to the community. So I had to leave him on the peak. Um, and say goodbye and walk back down. But who knows? Maybe he survived. I'm assuming it he worked. You didn't run in. You didn't run into any witches or bad spirits, right? So it definitely yeah, worked. It's, that's 100 percent effective. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a funny story happened actually when we were sleeping in one of the huts. Uh, my story is that I woke up in the middle of the night and Max, my guide, walked into the hut with his machete and a head torch. And I said, you know, whoa, what are you doing? And he says, oh, nothing, just go back to sleep. And he went back to sleep. So I went back to sleep. His story is he woke up in the middle of the night. Bearing in mind, we were in a little mud hut right now in the middle of the jungle, high up in the mountains where we came across a community that wasn't even on the map in the middle of nowhere. Madagascar is a massive island, th uh, fourth biggest island in the world. Um, and his story was he woke up, he looked to his right where Suzanne, me and Lever were sleeping. And apparently he said we were all convulsing in our sleep. We were all shaking eyes sort of rolled into the back of our heads. Um, he said he looked to the door, which is sort of like a cracked door, typical haunted movie style door. And um, he said that there was a lady stood on the outside and then he shouted, Oi, he woke up, he, he stood up, got his machete, and then she gave a little laugh and ran away. He ran after her and he was running for about hundred meters. He's a fast runner as well. Um, and as, as they entered the jungle, apparently she just, oof, she just vanished. And when he came back to the wooden hut, he said, you had all stopped convulsing. And that's when you woke up, Ash, to say, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was what? like, what? <laughs> so I was the only one there trying to think of a rational you know, reason as to what happened. Whilst everyone's like, no, no, you're wrong, Ash. It was, a, it was a witch. The witch cast you under a spell. And I'm like, come on, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And the reason that I wasn't convulsing in my sleep, this is what Max is telling me, my guide, who chased the witch with a machete is because Gertrude was sleeping right next to me. <laughs> um, so so, so uh, a, a close friend of our podcast is this uh, amateur ethnobotanist who talks about uh, how, how psychoactive drugs relate to culture around the world. And almost right. every culture seems to have a plant they, they ingest in some form that for whatever reason, whether it's medicinal reasons or spiritual reasons, did, do they in Madagascar have a specific plant that you know of? Um, they would have their alcohol. Um, in terms of plants, I do know that they, I'm sure they've made it illegal out there in most places, but of course the proper Bushmen that, you know, the, the tribes living out there possibly do. I never tried any, but I know that they will certainly have their certain, um, plants that, uh, that do that to them for sure. Um, and that could be a big part of it. They all seemed to have witch stories and they, they just believed it so much, um, that, yeah, it was just like, whoa. 
what was funny that night is, well, I had a really bad dream. And I remember saying I had an awful dream last night. And Leva and Suzanne said that they too had a really bad dream. So it was crazy. It was like, wow. And then at the same time, I'm thinking, well, where did the idea of carrying a white chicken come from? Surely that came from somewhere. And I'm like, maybe, maybe it's crazy, isn't it? Because when I'm out there and I'm with them guys, I'm just like, wow, you know, the world is a crazy place. Who, want, who knows, especially in the depths of the jungles of Madagascar. And so I'm laughing, thinking of a rational decision. And they're sort of laughing at me for not believing in it. And I'm just like, whoa, talk about, you know, a whole community against one person. And, uh, but Suzanne was a photographer from Brussels. So she joined me for three weeks. And after that, she was really spooked out. She uh, never slept in her, in her own tent again. She was always sleeping in Max and Lever's tent just because she was spooked. <laughs> Crazy though, eh? Crazy. So a lot of stories. Uh, and I don't think I managed to get that one on the, the Joe Rogan podcast either. So I think that's a, a story not many people know of. It's in the book. Um, but there you go. Yeah, a witch story. That's remarkable, man. Yeah, so... <laughs> Tune in next week for the end of Ash's story. I was blown away by so much of what I just heard. So his stories remind me of someone or what it must have been like for someone to travel back in the early stages of, of exploration for Westerners, going out to these foreign jungles and lands and just immersing themselves into these places purely for explore, exploration. Yeah. 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 It, 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 I don't know. Incredible. It was just incredible. Yeah. The whole thing. The conversation well, uh, was amazing. And the interesting thing is a lot of those explorers back in the day, half of them died. Maybe not half. That could be an exaggeration. Probably. Right. Is. But a lot of them did die. I mean, he puts in a lot of training and a lot of research, which has helped him tremendously. That's, that's especially after one of the his major... first experience in right. Southeast Asia. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, one of the major advantages he has is the availability of all the information that those people did not. But whoa man whoa yeah, what a, what a life impressive. that guy's living yeah yeah and so stay tuned next week to listen to the rest of our conversation with ash on finishing up madagascar china and his conservation efforts now for the trivia question what did the people in vietnam do to ash and his friend while they were traveling through hmm it's a good one it is it was a fun one yeah if you know the answer Shoot us an email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or you can shoot us a direct message on any of the social media platforms. And please take a moment out of your day if you are feeling so kind and today is one of those great days and give us a rating on whatever platform you listen to us on and tune in next week. 